This is episode 68 of the Landscape Photography Show, and on this podcast episode, we're talking with my good friend, Mike Bowen. Now, I know Mike way back since middle school, and we were just catching up in this episode about how we had kind of failed to keep up with one another, and I really wanted to get in touch with Mike because I've been watching his Instagram account, and I've really been impressed by the leaps and bounds that he's been able to take in his photographic journey and his creativity with his photography and a very unique style that he has of photojournalism and capturing his adventures on camera. Mike and I talk about coming from a similar background and how it led to his minimalist lifestyle now and we also discussed how he's taken that minimalistic lifestyle over into his camera gear setup and how he thinks that has really improved his creativity when he's in the field taking photos and much much more The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with Mike Bowen. Mike is kind of a unique guest because I've actually known Mike for several years now, although we haven't talked in several years, Mike. I, is it middle school where we actually met? Yeah, it, it was growing up in Nashville, Tennessee together and, and hanging out in middle school and high school with our, uh, with our youth group and our church. Yeah, man. What has your life been like since that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I went, I went to college like so many others and realized that I loved working with young people and I loved outdoor recreation. And so I pursued a master's degree in recreation and was fortunate enough to get a full-time job at Wake Forest University uh, upon graduating, uh, working for their outdoor program. So it's, it's a full-time college job where I'm basically the administrator over the adventure trip program, the climbing wall, renting equipment to students so they can go camp and bike and hike on their own. And basically, basically a leisure service, just like intramural sports is through campus recreation mm-hmm. on campus. And I worked there for two years. I worked for Middle Tennessee State University, my alma mater for five years. Um, and then most recently, I worked for Auburn University for two years. So yeah, basically a decade of working for college outdoor programs and, um, you know, bringing my personal passion of outdoor travel and adventure uh, and trying to inspire young people and show them how awesome it is and all the amazing benefits that come from it. Was it fulfilling to you? It was. It was. You know, obviously all of the office time and, and paperwork is draining, but yeah, some of my favorite memories have been taking students to Scotland or Spain or Puerto Rico or rafting on the Okoe River, uh, a very special place in southeast Tennessee. Um, and, you know, what's cool is, uh, speaking of that, you know, a raft guide might get to know someone for four hours. But when you work for a uni- university for their outdoor program, you might get to know that student for four years. And so... Um, I, I, it's been a blessing and, and, and very fulfilling to keep up some of those relationships with, with those students. You know, I, I think ultimately that's what it's all about. Yeah, I think, 
and and we'll get to kind of where you are right now in Bend, Oregon. I think it's it's really compelling though to preface this by saying, you know, when we grew up together uh, several years ago, we grew up in a town uh, in 2017. These are due to the quick Google searches that I did right before we jumped on the call. Uh, 2017 medium household income was $151,722 amongst the highest in the entire country. We lived in an area that was all about stuff, um, expensive things, and we kind of grew up in that same culture, Mike. And I'm wondering now if I can put the words into your mouth of what what you're doing, living in a van full time in Bend, Oregon. It's very different than than how we grew up. What's the reaction been from people who you've known for a long period of time who see what you're doing now um, and, and kind of have that reaction to it? Yeah, I, I love that question, and and to be honest with you, which I always will be, I uh, I don't know that I really put two and two together that we did grow up in, in such an affluent community, and then now I am so um, minimal. I think is a fair way to put it. Um, you're right. You know, I, I grew up, and and I remember there being a Grammy on top of the television at one of my friend's houses, and. And uh, everyone had cars and beautiful homes and, and you know, it was very fluent and um, you could even say luxurious. Uh, of course, those people still have their own issues, um, but we did grow up with a lot of opportunity. Um, I don't know that I have like a uniform response by people that we grew up with really one way or the other. Um, I think if, if someone were to say that they knew me, that they're not surprised at all, you know. Hmm. Um, you know, I don't know if this is I don't know if this is answering one of your future questions or not, but I'm going to go for it. You know, when when I was in middle school, my mom's sister, uh, her name is Margie. Uh, my aunt is very generous and um, sent me on an outward bound course to Washington State. And basically, it's a nonprofit organization. Outward bound is and it tries to teach you. Uh, to be self-reliant and basically grow your your personal character by personal challenge in a wilderness setting. And, you know, I remember flying out to Seattle as a seventh grader and not knowing anyone and going on this backpacking mountaineering trip. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, but what I experienced was this incredible sense of adventure and it was very empowering Um I found community and I found great wonder in the beautiful areas of Washington state that we experienced. And part of that was having this little disposable camera, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember like taking it to the drugstore afterwards and getting the film developed. Um, the old like Walgreens camera. You get one click and that thing, you know, yeah. then you're like, you're wind it up, you know? <laughs> um, and so I would say, Given that story, um, it explains or th that was kind of the creation of my sincere thirst for adventure, um, as well as a beginning of my love for photography uh, and, and, and telling that story through images. Um, so I would say if I if I had to answer the reaction would, would probably be more like, oh, that makes a lot of sense if you know Mike um, and not and not so much you grew up in this affluent area and now 
all your worldly possessions are in one vehicle. <laughs> yeah. So I love the question though. That's cool. I think a lot of people, a lot of photographers, especially right now, look to something like van life, uh, minimalism, and they see it as something to work towards or kind of like a dream, maybe not to live in full time, but having like that adventure mobile, that van. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people would be interested in how you went about making it livable for yourself, both working with the inside of your van and also mentally how you prepared for that and some of the challenges that you face in it. Yeah. Another great question. I mean, I think speaking of minimalism again, I don't know if this was a a result from growing up where we did it very well could be beyond my conscious, but, um, I guess, I guess just my personality is much more big picture and and it's much more as to why uh, things are the way they are or why you're doing what you're doing. And in terms of minimalism, you know, when I was working for Middle Tennessee State, I, I had a full-time salary, but it wasn't much, you know, it was under 40,000. And and in the world standards, that's not a ton of money. But what one thing I did was that I drove my mom's old minivan around and I took all the seats out and that was my first taste of van life, you know, and that was probably... 2010, 2011, that I got that minivan. And I just realized, oh, you don't have to have a fancy sports car. Um, if you pay cash for something, you don't have to have a payment. And so I was able to, to minimize my overhead. And then in combination with minimizing my overhead with a used minivan and cheap rent, for example, I was able to, to put that time, energy and money into traveling. Um, and it gave me a taste of van life. And so when it became time to get a new van uh, or a new vehicle, to me, the, the choice was easy. You know, I, I had a taste of it uh, and I knew that it could create so much opportunity to travel and, and travel with ease. So it was December of 2017. My, my minivan had kind of starting to nickel and dime me with the transmission and all this stuff. And so I was like, you know what? I've been saving. I've been living cheap. I'm going to buy a, a cargo van. And so I bought a ProMaster. And it did take me a long time, but piece by piece, picking the brains of people that had done it before me and and talking to the right people, um, you know, I I did make it into a little house and it's insulated and I have lights and a fan and I kept it very simple. Um, You know, some people have extravagant kitchens and dishwashers and oh my goodness, you know, that, that, that complexity to me was not appealing. Um, Granite countertops. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, good, good for them. Like, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm jealous, but like, if that's how you roll, great. You know, um, I, I'm not judging that one bit. Uh, that's great. You know, some of those rigs are a couple hundred thousand dollars. And if that's your home, that's really cool, too. Um, mine was, you know, a tenth of that cost. And, and it's my home. Um, I, I would say I, trans, I transitioned pretty easily, you know, while I had bought it as a adventure rig for weekends or week long trips. Um, now I'm in it, you know? Um, so, so basically to put these pieces together, you know, I was working for Auburn university for the outdoor program and, um, I just was really struggling, you know, and, and just to be frank with you here, um, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't think, I couldn't learn. I was irritable. I just was in this weird place of life, which is very unlike me and, and finally got diagnosed with clinical depression. 
Um, and, and I'm, I'm open about it because I think the stigma needs to go away. And basically I just had gotten burned out. Um, and the brain can only handle so much for so long and it, it will put itself into a depression to, to rescue itself. And so once I got that answer, um, it gave me a lot of clarity. I feel like I got my brain back. Um, medication has been super helpful and, you know, uh, a combination of things happened where I was in Alabama, um, the, the pandemic started to hit and I finished the camper van and I was like, wait, why am I still here? And so, you know, I just kind of realized that it had been my dream to, to travel. Um, and I had, I had done that pretty successfully, but I had to realize I was the only thing holding me back. Um, again, you know, now that I had the van and, and whatever. And so, um, yeah, so piece by piece, I, 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 you know, finished the outrigging and moved into full-time van life in May of last year. And spent the entire summer traveling, socially distancing, taking photos. And uh, I must say, I'm way happier. I, I just recently did a podcast with Jared Armijo, who also talked about suffering from depression and how photography w- was used as a way to kind of break out of that and, and use mm. his creativity in a way. I, I asked him this question of what does it feel like to have like a bout of depression and you kind of explained it. I want to hear your explanation a little bit deeper because I think, like I told him, I think breaking down the stigma or even helping people understand what they may be going through and maybe seeking out uh, help from a counselor or something like Mm -hmm. that could could really be beneficial. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Uh, after I got diagnosed, it, it, it finally was the answer I was looking for. And so there's a lot I could say about it, but for, for me personally, I knew that I was suffering. I knew that I was feeling these symptoms of sleeplessness and irritability, brain fog. Oh man, brain fog is bizarre. Um, it's, it's kind of like how you feel first thing in the morning before coffee, but then you feel like it all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, does no one know how I feel? And um, so I was trying to treat the symptoms through a multitude of ways. And I kept thinking if I could just sleep at night uh, and wake up refreshed, then I could cure my brain fog and then I wouldn't be irritable. And it, it just wasn't the case, you know. And, and so after I got diagnosed, I did a little bit of research and I found out basically one in 10 Americans suffer from some sort of anxiety, depression. And it can often take the majority of the time over 10 years to diagnose. And as I've reflected on my life, I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And and to help fill in the gaps there again, I mean, other than those symptoms I described, what was weird about it was I I would find myself in these thought cycles of why are things the way they are? Um... Why did this person behave or do that? Why are they trying to put off this image? And I could not get out of that thought cycle. Uh, and it would just devour me. And I knew that I wasn't myself. But again, I, I guess I was just denying the mental health possibility of it. Um, and so given the chance to, to publicly say, uh, if you're feeling not like yourself, um, there could be a chance that mental health is is uh, the culprit. And I also want to clarify, mental health is how you're doing. People like to say, oh, I need to use my vacation 
from, from my mental health. And that's true, but it's much more, it's much deeper than how much energy you have or what kind of mood you're in. Uh, mental health is just like heart health or your body health. Um, it's, it's a real thing and it, it can kind of be a silent killer. And the last thing I'll add is it's, it's an example of when toughness is bad. Because I just mm. thought, oh, okay, I'm in the most demanding job of my life. I don't feel good. I'm just going to tough it out. And, and you stick to whatever old saying or whatever motivation you have, but you feel like crap. And it's like, it's not the time or place to tough it out because really you're just extending your suffering. Um, so yeah, ho- hopefully that illumination of my experience and, and some thoughts you know, might help um, someone else uh, recognize and then, and then get through it. Uh, I think recognition and diagnosis is, is huge when you talk about mental health. So that's awesome, man. Th- thanks for being number one, sharing so that anybody yeah. who's feeling like that can f- seek out help. Um, and also being vulnerable in that I think, uh, one of the hardest things for men our age to do is, is to really be vulnerable, especially on a public platform, like you're on right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I don't, I don't know whether that just attributes to being pretty okay with who I am, um, or comfortable because we grew up together or, uh, honestly, I think it's, it's a motivation that I get the word out there that goodness gracious, if I would have been diagnosed years ago, uh, my life would have been so much better. I, I really feel like it stole some quality of life. Um, for almost a decade. Um, and I don't mean to be dramatic. I don't mean to be a, a victim at all. Uh, that's, that's not what I'm trying to say. So please don't hear me say that. But um, yeah, man, uh, I think with the year that 2020 was and how interesting of a place our country is in, like, why not be vulnerable and, and try to help each other? You know, is there is there a better time than this and try, uh, to try to do so? So taking you from Auburn, moving up to the Pacific Northwest. Um, when did you really start to take photography seriously? Um, when did you start to really work on photography as kind of like a craft and an, a, an expression outlet? Yeah, totally. Um, I would say a quicker, bigger picture rundown of my relationship with taking photos has been, um, you know, maybe, maybe high school and undergrad. Like I was pretty excited about this little Olympus point and shoot that had like, you know, 10 megapixels. <laughs> uh, yeah. You remember that? It was like all about how many megapixels you had. Um, yeah. which just was like so sick. And I just remember going on different adventures to the Smokies or to friends, lakes, lake houses. And, and I love taking taking photos. Um, so, so I can say I have always loved it and enjoyed it. When I went to grad school at Western Kentucky University, I met some guys through a college ministry called RUF uh, who were in school because WKU has, I think, the number two ranked photojournalism program in the nation. Mm-hmm. And when I saw some of their work, I was, I was truly blown away and, and I was compelled by the power of their photos. I was like, like, how do you do that? And so after that, I was pretty intimidated. Uh, of course, these guys were basically trained to be professionals. They were way above me. And so it was natural to be impressed or compelled and, and therefore intimidated um, and I kind of dwelled in that reality for a few years of, 
not reality, but the perception of being intimidated. You know, as as a quick aside, it's kind of funny thinking back. Like I remember looking at magazines and Backpacker magazine or outside, and and you'd see this incredible image, and at the bottom, it would have the the technical specs. And it would be like, you know, the F-stop, the shutter speed and the, and the ISO. And I remember thinking, if, if I could ever figure out what the heck that means. <laughs> like, like, that's this language of elitism. And I feel so excluded. Um, and so now I'm like, oh, yeah, duh. Like, that's what they're talking about. But um, so, so I must, I must give a shout out to a few people from WKU who have really influenced me, Luke Sherritt, um, Daniel Houghton and Brian Lemon. And those are all really dear friends of mine. And Luke, um, is a full-time freelance photographer. I think he's one of the best in the country. You know, he was a prodigy. We can talk more about him, but basically January of maybe 2015, I bought a little Fuji xt10 and i liked it it was portable it's powerful you know it's mirrorless and then i shot my buddy's fuji x-pro2 and i was like i have to have this <laughs> super cool camera really beautiful everyone asked me if it was film it's just really handsome um and then i shot a canon 5d mark 3 and i loved the shutter feel i felt like i was being a more legit photographer and, and so I've, I've been in the Canon Mark III world ever since. Um, the transition from Auburn to Central Oregon um, was and wasn't related to photography. I would definitely say it has, um, it, has been, it has been beneficial in not being burned out or stuck in a rut, you know, Okay. That's kind of what I was just about to ask. Did it make yeah. you a more inspired photographer? Yeah, 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 totally. So, you know, in, in one of the former podcasts that you did um, that I've been listening to on my drive today, um, you, you had a good conversation about creativity and how to avoid that rut. And I was just so privileged to be able to travel around, you know, the American West for May, June, July. Yeah, three months, four months um, with no agenda. And man, the United States is just incredible. And being able to go to some beautiful places and not be working and not have an agenda really allowed for more creativity and just more opportunity to shoot stuff I was excited about. Hey guys, real quick, I just want to pause and tell you about a really unique opportunity that you have right now with Visual Wilderness and with my website, davidjohnstonart.com. If you go to either of our websites right now, you can get any of my courses for 33% off for a limited time when you use the code David33 during checkout. On there and on my website, you're going to find several courses that I've done that help you through post-processing and how to create unique looks that will assist your creative style in photography. You can also find things like how to photograph panoramas in landscape photography. And then lastly, if you go to my website, davidjohnstonart.com right now, I have a free course on creative compositions, those next level compositions that you can take after you followed the initial guidelines of composition. So these are the tricks that I use in the field all the time to step my photos up. Right now, let's get back to the episode. 
you mentioned like photojournalism is kind of like your style, I, I guess I should say, to put words into your mouth. Um, for that style, like a story has to accompany the image. It has to it has to mean something or portray something. How important is that for, for you and your own photography? Yeah, great question. And, and you nailed it, you know. Um, I don't know if ironic is the word. No one really knows what ironic means anymore. Thanks to Alanis Morissette, mm -hmm. um, you know, rain on your wedding day. That that's not irony. Not, not at all. Um, <laughs> it's bad luck, but, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's ironic if you will, that I'm being interviewed for a landscape photography podcast. Cause I don't identify as that. Um, and I was telling someone that the other night and they said, Oh, but remember that photo, that you took over crater lake when venus was showing and i was like yeah like and and they loved the photo way more than me and they were like that's like that's like never going to happen again and that was so moving and i'm, I'm thankful for that conversation because it reminded me that that landscape photography does have so much power especially in a context like that but for, yeah for me personally what i find compelling and this this doesn't mean that landscape isn't but I, what i find compelling is to try to tell a story with photos um, and that story is most often told with a subject. Um, for me, it's, it's, it's kind of like hunting. Um, you know, you, us humans, we're built on a, on a human, on, on a hunting platform. And so just living life and, and, and traveling and adventuring and then capturing people doing things very candidly, um, I think is my style. Um, while I have done some things that were staged, I don't feel good about it. And I certainly don't feel as compelled when I view a photo that's very staged. Um, those are some personal opinions and, th and that might, you know, not be, uh, what someone wants to hear. Um, but as I scroll through Instagram so often, I see a lot of pretty pictures but I don't always see powerful ones. And I think that distinguishment is profound. I want I want you to expand on the hunting idea. I know a lot of photographers that I talk to um, say, you know, you just have to kind of clear your mind. You have to be out in the location and wait for that moment to come to you. Wait for those ideas to come to you. And that's a very popular trend that, that I even ascribe to so often practicing mindfulness when I am out in the field shooting and it helps me to clear my mind, but it sounds like you're taking a contrast in that approach. Yeah. Love the question and definitely excited to answer. So, um, I, I would start by saying, okay, what do you witness when Joe Schmo off the street, zero photography knowledge, zero photography comp, you know, competence, wants to take a picture of something? What happens? Okay, they get out their cell phone and they, and they capture what they want to capture within the frame. And they're like, I took a picture of that, but it's not a powerful photo. And here's what I mean. What I've, what I've learned and been taught is that in order to make a, a, a compelling or powerful photo, you have to tell the story in a different way. You, you have to change your angle. You know, if, if you look at Doug Mills, who is the New York Times White House photographer, 
and frankly, I think one of the best on, on the planet, Doug does such a, an incredible job because he's going to tell that same story from a different angle or in a different way or in a different method than all of those staff photographers that work for the other media outlets. Um, and when you look at Doug's work, it's just so clean. It's so unique. It's so wow. Um, so in, in that sense, um, I think, I think the hunting approach can work because when you're hunting, you're on the move and you don't want to just take a picture of the subject and say, I took that picture. You, you want to look high. You want to look low. You want to shoot through a window. You want to shoot a reflection of that window or of water. You're working on telling the story in a different way. And, you know, what was cool for me was in, was in October, I actually went to Eastern Montana on a bird hunting trip. Um, as the photographer with with some buddies, and that was cool because they were walking around with guns, and I was walking around with my camera, and I felt just the same appeal and rush. Like I was trying to capture something special, just like they were trying to capture, um, you know, the elusive quail. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's really cool because both can be true, and and it's paradoxical because they're seemingly opposite, opposite but I think both can work. That's really interesting because. I feel like in your style and in landscape photography so often it's like we want we want our style, we want our message, we want our mm. photographs to come across as impactful, but mm. like we we don't want to be known. You know what I'm saying? Like we want our images mm. to be known and we want our our message to be heard, but we want to stay behind the lens of the camera and that's kind of what I heard you saying when you were talking about going out with your friends, like you wanted them to be seen. Um, you wanted that image to come across, but you were just getting the rush out of being there and getting to witness it and frame it up in a unique way. Yeah, totally. You know, like the, they're on the hunt for birds uh, and I was on the hunt for photos um, and, and both take a lot of the same skill set. You know, you got to be prepared. You got to know what you're getting yourself into. Um, and, and the camera is a tool. Uh, of course, it's not a weapon, um, but they were looking through the sights of their of their shotguns and I was looking through the viewfinder. Um, and so I think for me on this super, super um, uh, deep down, super humanistic uh, way, that was very satisfying for me, you know, um, to, to feel like I was on a hunt. Uh, and the truth was, is, is that I was. Now we talked about, you just talked about using your camera as a tool. We talked about your minimalistic way of life. Do you take that same approach into the gear that you carry? I do. Yeah. So, so I shoot a Canon 5D Mark III. Um, I don't shoot a Mark IV cause it's only more megapixels. And as we talked about, that's, you know, that's silly. Um, <laughs> both are great cameras. Um, and you know, frankly, I would only have my pancake 40 millimeter lens if I didn't shoot a wedding a couple years ago. And I basically used some of that wedding money to get an, an 85 millimeter for some zoom. Um, because I think it's cool to use your feet. Um, and you know, when you only have one lens, you have to find a way to make the shot work. 
So, okay, for sure. If you're in Africa, like I know you've been, and you're trying to reach that giraffe 100 yards away, a pancake lens is not going to cut it. Okay, mm-hmm. fair enough. But, but another example is like, recently I was on the top of Mount St. Helens, and this dude had this like super big, heavy, cumbersome, you know, telephoto lens. And I almost bust out laughing. I'm like, what are you zooming in on, dog? Mm-hmm. Like the, the view is the wide angle. Like this is spectacular. Um, and I, I'm not attempting to judge or whatever, but sometimes I just wonder, you know, like, are you, are you hauling that huge telephoto lens? Um, um, for good reason. Um, I, I think sometimes people get allured with that, but then I think more often than not, a more compelling photo is letting it breathe a little bit and showing some context. Um, so yeah, one, one camera, two lenses. <laughs> I, I would like to get back to that. And let me tell you why I, I started out with the same approach. Uh, I had a camera, I had two kit lenses and I was looking back through a lot of my photography and I thought it was way more creative than it is right now. And I think it's a reverse process of mm. most uh, creatives as photographers and, and who see themselves as having an artistic view of I was limited and it made me more creative in what I saw in the landscape. But now that I have more access to more pieces of gear, I find myself more hand tied and and also using them as a crutch to get images that I've seen so many times before. And look, you describing what you saw on the top of the mountain, like I could easily say, well, dude, he's just zooming in on like a little piece of light that he thinks is interesting or a little like mountaintop profile pick that he wants to get. But I still find myself wishing that I had the limitations to make me think harder about what I'm seeing in the outdoors. Yeah, you nailed it. And, and limitation is, is a word, but it can also bring you freedom if you know how to use it well. <laughs> you know, like, like you're limited to your spouse, Dave, but it brings you so much freedom uh, True. because you don't have to go on any more dates you don't ever have to be told no uh, on another date or whatever. You know, you and your wife um, put restrictions on yourself and it brings you freedom just in the same way dieting does. You know, like if you limit, you know, your cold beer intake or your Cheetos intake, oh, that's not freedom. Well, it is freedom because now you don't feel like crap. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I guess I was just taught that um, using your feet and becoming more resourceful uh, was better. And yeah, it it certainly makes the decision making process easier. Doesn't it? It's like, it's, it's like, uh, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't even really generally carry the second lens with me. I just try to make what I have work. And it's a neat thought to think about that, making you more resourceful, creative and and competent. I mean, it's, I'm kind of realizing that's what I do by speaking that out loud, but, um, I think there's something to it. Yeah. Well, let me bring up something you said a little bit earlier. Okay. So you said you got your Mark III and the term you use is you felt like you had become a legit photographer. Mm -hmm. Um, Buying like a camera, getting that lens, reducing our limitations. Does that make us feel more creative or does that actually make us more creative? 
Um, I love the question. I, w- I would say more for me, it, it, it was more of a technical frame of mind. And what I mean is this, um, the battery life is far superior. Uh, I feel like I can go on a week long trip with one Canon battery and, and, and survive. And I have, and it's, rem- it's remarkable. Um, you could say it's remark threeable. Um, wow. Look bad. at him. Look at bad. him. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, uh, I love the shutter feel, you know, and I think th- I think the shutter feel of, of you know, the um, really just made made it feel made me feel more legit. Um, again, all the love in the world to the Fujis. When I looked through the viewfinder, I couldn't see much. Um, and so I found myself using the screen as a viewfinder. And it's OK if you do it, but it, it just didn't feel the same as tucking my you know, eyeball into that viewfinder and, and, um, having the little crosshairs and then feeling the shutter. Um, yeah, it's bigger, it's bulkier, but man, I love the sensor and I love the shutter feel so much, you know, so, so paired with battery life, um, that was, that's been a winning combination for me. Um, so that's the technical side of it in terms of the, the non-technical creative side. Um, I think you stumped me. I, I, I don't know that I can for sure say that, limiting, you know, made me more creative. I think for me in my journey and getting more serious, um, the Canon was it. And, you know, um, one of my goals with photos is just to simply pay for the camera. Um, if I get to a point where I can pay for my camera and my lenses, um, then it is, it is a tool that has ultimately served me well and been free. Um, that's kind of cool to think about. I think I think it has two sides to the coin and and making somebody feel like a legit photographer. Um, Maybe it does pull in a little bit of that, like when we're just getting started, when we're when we're trying to figure out what we're doing as a photographer and what we're trying to portray and whatever it is we're shooting, um, we do kind of feel like like a fraud, Um, like like an imposter, like we're not. We're, if we could just get there, we would be good enough, um, which I think is is a poisonous way to think uh, like the good enough. You're you're never you're always going to find something to, to critique on your own and, and see that you could improve on. Um, on the other side of the coin, I think it could be used as a motivational tactic almost to the fact that I know whenever I get a piece of new gear, I do get excited about go using, going to use it. Um, you know, I just recently really got into macro photography and seeing smaller scenes in nature because I got a new macro lens. Um, so I, I think it has two sides to the same coin that can kind of be detrimental to our thinking, but also spark creativity, if that makes sense. Totally, totally. You know, the only way you're getting that shot with a giraffe is is to have some zoom. No way around it. Um, if if you if you want to be a wildlife photographer and you have a pancake lens, you better be dang good at getting close to them. <laughs> and fast. And fast, exactly. So for sure, it's a two sided coin. Um, and you know, maybe that's just American culture. It's it's funny. It's like you know, in the '90s and 2000s, it was all about having the big house, and then you see the tiny house movement. Um, or, you know, in fly fishing, it's all about having all these rods and reels and, and fly fishing. And then the Tankara rod came out and everyone's like, oh, it's just a piece of bamboo with a, 
you know, with a string on it. Um, but it's fly fishing and I love it. And so I think those things have a way of coming full circle for sure. Um, yeah. I know you said when you looked through the viewfinder, you couldn't really see very well. Mike, I know that the, you, you've had vision problems. Um, how do, how do you take the images that you want to first, first describe what, what your vision problems are? And then secondly, how do you take the images that you want to with, again, I think limitations is becoming mm. a, a consistent theme that we're coming up on. Yeah, for sure. I, I like to joke that, um, my, some, you know, two of my favorite things on, in the whole world are mountain biking and photography, and both are precedented on the ability to see well. Um, and I don't see well. <laughs> um, technically, my right eye is a lazy eye and my optic nerve never fully developed. Um, and it's not fixable with surgery. You know, I wear glasses a lot. Uh, it's, it's quirky. And, and if you know me well, you're probably laughing right now because I can read the letters on a, on a, you know, on a Christmas card 20 feet away from me right now, um, just fine. But if you were to like toss a tennis ball at me or say, Hey, look at that plane in the sky. For some reason, my tracking ability is, is really poor. Mm. Um, so if you want to make me look really awkward, yeah, just toss, you know, phone or car keys at me and I'll just, I'll just <laughs> die. Uh, I, I make this horrible face and sound and my body clenches up and I can't see and, um, so I'm not going to lie. I take a lot of Hail Marys and basically what that means is when you point the camera and, 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 you know, hit the shutter, uh, as a hopeful prayer, not, not being sure what you're going to get. Um, I, I do take a lot of Hail Marys. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of quirky when I, when I stick my left eye, my good eye in the viewfinder. I actually see stars for a couple seconds and then, and then my eyes kind of clear and that, that starry vision or fog kind of goes away. And then I can see pretty well with, with the Canon. Um, so which, which leads me to a bigger point, you know, I love taking photos because it is my creative expression and it's something that I knew I could learn how to do and pursue Whereas I know I could never write a good song um, or paint a good picture to be creative, but I knew that I could learn how to take a photo. And so I love taking photos because, as I mentioned about being intimidated earlier, as I have progressed, each, each micro step that I progress brings about so much positive energy. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of similar to, you know, um, the obese person who runs a 5k for the first time and they think I just ran a 5k and, and your self-esteem and, and the way you look at yourself, the way you feel about your whole life changes. And then that person runs a 10k and then they run a half and then they run a marathon. And, and so the same is, has been me with photos, you know, like because I was so intimidated early on, the more I progress, the more positive emotion it brings. And that's what keeps me coming back time and time again. <clears throat> I think the two common themes we've come up with during our discussion here is intimidation. That word has come mm. up a few times uh, and limitation. Mm. Um, let me take, let me take the first one here. Intimidation. Do you still feel intimidated with photography? Hmm. I don't think I do. And it's not because I think I'm good or great. I think it's because 
Um, I, I, I'm very thankful to be able to honestly say when, not if, but when I see work superior to mine, I'm happy for that person. Um, and, I, and I'm happy for them because I understand that that was a journey. And just like Chris Burkhardt said on, said on your own very podcast, like there was a time he didn't know anything about, you know, cameras or photography and, and it's all about a journey. Um, and if I might add as a, as a slight side note and piece of advice, find someone whose work that you admire and try to emulate them. Um, it doesn't quite give you your own style, but man, that's been really helpful for me being, being motivated by guys like Colt Fetters and Luke Sherritt, um, who are both tremendous followers on Instagram. Um, you know, some, sometimes I, I see superior work and again, I'm happy for them. Sometimes I might think, wow, that's a really cool angle or way that they told that story through their photo. Um, but I, I don't know that I'm intimidated. There's, I have still so much to learn, um, both conceptually and technical wise. Um, but, you know, I also have the great benefit of uh, taking photos is not my career. It's not my income. Um, so I have the great joy of being able just to shoot what I'm passionate about and kind of win in what I want to. <laughs> well, what limitations are you using right now? Like you talked about freedoms. What limitations besides like the couple pieces of gear that you have uh, are you using as, as kind of inspiration and motivation? What limitations am I using? Oh man, great question again. Um, I, I I think it leads me to say I don't know that I actually have only two lenses because I know it will motivate me to be more creative. I think for me, it's more like I just freaking love simplicity mm. um, and minimalism and. I don't want to spend the money, a lot of money on it. Uh, and for all the other reasons we've discussed, it makes decision-making more simple. You're less likely to lose a lens or scratch a lens or whatever. Um, so, so I don't know that I'm like forcing myself to grow due to self-imposed limitations. Um, and, and so at that, I almost just have to tip my hat and say, that's such a great question. I don't know if I have a crystal clear answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say this, like on the limitation side, and I think a lot of people, a lot of photographers probably scoff at limiting your gear. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, if I could share like one story of sure. something that I've experienced with this. So I was in... Grand Teton National Park, I was photographing this just incredible sunrise that was going on um, along the Snake River there. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the Teton Range like right in front of you. Any, any photo that you get there is going to be incredible because those mountains are insanely beautiful. And I was using, I was like, well, I can't really get it with my wide angle. Uh, it's too close with the 70 to 200. I'm going to go in between and I'm going to use this fixed 50 and get this shot. So I'm, I'm taking off my wide angle. I'm putting the 50 on and it slips out of my hands because it's freezing outside, hits a rock, splits in two, and now both halves of my 50 are in the bottom of the snake river. Um, 
I say that because I got a photograph that I'm very happy with because I was then limited with this weird in-between focal range that I was uncomfortable with at the beginning, sticking with it and, and kind of seeing what was there and, and what I could work with. I now have like one of my favorite photos of all time, this just like beautiful portrait, really close up shot of one of the peaks kind mm. of covered and enveloped in fog. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I And I think that's what's one really cool thing about our love of photography is that both are true. Um, simple works great. And then having every piece of gear to, to you know, in your quiver um, can certainly open up your possibilities and your opportunities. So I, I think it's just pretty neat um, that, that both can be true. They don't have to be, you know, um, it doesn't have to be A or B, you know, and, and I'm not super big on relativism, but in that case I am. And, and uh, yeah, love, love the story. And um, life is, is, is funny like that. Um, I feel like there's so many good inventions that have happened by accident, you know, whether it's sticky notes or, um, you know, some, some, you know, different kind of beer or wine. It's like, Oh, I didn't mean to, to do that, but the way it turned out was pretty great. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's like half the things that I probably more than half the things I do in my entire life is, well, that didn't come out as planned, but you know, yeah, it looks pretty good. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, that's a cool thing. And, and I, and I think just, you know, as a note to our listeners, like having that flexibility in the field and not taking things so seriously, I think, I think can, can take you a long way. Is that something you see photographers doing, taking it seriously? Um, you know, this is a whole nother can of worms, but sometimes when I see certain accounts on Instagram, it does seem like they worked really hard for that angle or for that photo. Um, and like, it's really important to them or, um, that, that they're taking it seriously. And, and that's great. Uh, a lot of people have their full-time job for taking photos and, you know, have to, have to do their brand. Um, I don't push again. I don't push against that in a business sense. I guess I push it back against it on a, on a more personal sense. Um, I, I just, I just think it's gen, generally better in life to have a loose grip on, on everything you can have a loose grip on. So including your camera lens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, I, I do want to ask you this just to wrap up. I know yeah. on the podcast, we've talked a lot about, um, protecting the outdoors, protecting locations that we've gone to shoot in and, and the places that we love. I know I've seen way more foot traffic on delicate areas in the Smokies in recent years. Um, some of the more fragile locations get trampled on in areas where you're not allowed to go. Mm. I, I, is there, is there, are there things you're doing in your photography I think, or, or things that you hold close to your heart and photographing places that are outdoors extra special to you because of your background and taking groups out and, and showing them, you know, the outdoors with your, your college groups. Yeah, totally. And, and I, I also think a lot about that, Dave, um, both in the context of leave no trace ethics, as well as, you know, preparing for this podcast. Um, and just kind of racking my brain about how I view the trade. And yeah, so zooming out here a little bit, no pun intended. 
um, you know, it reminds me of two different things. The forming of the national parks and zoos. Okay, bear with me. Okay. A long time ago, 150 years ago, when they were trying, when the American government was trying to decide whether to or not create national parks, the argument was this. If we designate national parks, we are announcing that they are there and therefore increasing heavily the amount of traffic and the amount of wear and tear. If we don't protect them, we don't announce they are there, but then the danger is they might be more open to vandalism, and then and then if people don't see it for themselves, they don't appreciate it. Same thing with zoos. The argument is these animals belong in the wild. Um, they need to be free. And the flip side of that is, okay, but now that you've seen a beluga whale in the Atlanta Aquarium, which is freaking awesome, by the way, uh, highly recommend the Atlanta Aquarium. Because you've seen those penguins and the beluga whales, don't you walk away caring quite a bit more about our natural world? So each side has its argument. I mean, for me personally, you know, just 20 minutes before this podcast, I I drove back in town from going to this really pristine desert in eastern Oregon. And to follow your lead, Dave, I'm going to leave that really vague. I'm just going to say eastern Oregon. I'm not going to say where I was specifically. So that's one answer. And then two, yeah, I made sure not to leave any trash behind or um, whatever, trying to minimize my own impact. So I highly recommend, if you're not familiar, going to leavenotrace.org, I think it is, um, or just becoming familiar with Leave No Trace ethics um, in the outdoor world. Basically, the idea is we want to travel to beautiful, special places and then leave and have the next person have just the same quality experience that we had. Um, and that's possible by leaving no trace. Um, their, their catchy slogan is leave only footprints and take only photos. Where can people go to find you? <laughs> um, I am living in central Oregon. Um, so if you want to come say, Hey, you know, c- come out to bend Oregon, but, um, uh, I'm on Instagram at daddy Bonesaw. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Well, Mike, I just want to thank you so much for taking time, rushing back from your trip to the desert and taking time to uh, talk to us about your journey in photography. And these are several new ideas that I know haven't really been talked about on the podcast before. So thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Dave. I I admire your work and it's been a a pleasure and an honor to, to be asked to do so. And, you know, I guess my closing comments would be in the world of photos, there is the technical side and there's the conceptual side. And if you are new or intermediate in photography, dive into the conceptual side and figure out what makes a good photo, a powerful photo, work on making that transition and then figure out all the technical stuff. Like like you said on your own podcast, you can put it on automatic or perhaps John Barclay said that. You can put it on automatic setting. It can figure it out for you. But you you have to understand what makes for a great photo and for a powerful photo. And the, and the last story that I'll say is I, I know this uh, good buddy of mine who's fantastically talented and accomplished, and, and he, he uses auto white balance. He's like, yeah, I don't even, I don't even know how to mess with that. <laughs> so it's funny, but it's also true that composition is king. Um, so that's, that's the last thought that, uh, that I wanted to share. So. 
was that your plug to come back on? Because those are like three more topics that we could spend another hour on. Call me anytime. (laughs) 